It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. That not only sounds delicious, but um, sounds like somebody that knows how to boogie. Uh, This is uh, by the B-52s. CBS Sunday Morning did a very good um, piece, a very good profile on uh, the B-52s and what they're up to these days. I was interested in it. So I've been listening to more music from the B-52s all week. I have been uh, really looking forward to talking with Louis Conti. Uh, Louis Conti is a, an interesting guy. He is a retired law enforcement officer. These days, he's a polygraph examiner, and he's the author of uh, the new novel, The Book of Sasquatch. Louis, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Well, thank you for having me on, Frank. And I am with you on $8 being way too much. For a box of cereal. Come on. Yeah, I mean, it's just, yeah, you know. uh, again, I, I uh, they would have me committed if I spent $8 on some cereal. <laughs> uh, Lewis, hey, what was what was your career in law enforcement? What agency were you with? Where did you serve? I worked uh, for Westchester County Probation, and, um, uh, you know, I was there for 33 years um, and did a lot of interesting things there. Um uh, I worked in a street gang unit, and uh, I also, uh, you know, as, as I worked my way up the ladder, I ran the sex offender program uh, and um, domestic violence program. So, a lot of a lot of interesting work. What were you always a writer, or did you always have ambitions of being a writer, or is that something that developed after you retired? You know, it it started as I was thinking about retirement and what I wanted to do. Um, and so one of the, you know, uh, interesting things in my life is I'm the father of triplet boys, right? They're now 21 years old. Uh, and two of my sons had aut- have autism. And so that became, you know, obviously something that I kind of had a process, uh, and that led me into a whole bunch of interesting, um, you know, things that I didn't see coming in my life. They're a blessing. I'm very happy with them. They're great kids. Um, but you know, it was, uh, it, it was something that caused me to do a lot of thinking and a lot of reflecting, uh, on what goes on in the world today. Um, you know, and, um, you know, for anyone out there who's got kids with autism, um, they know what it's like to be up late at night. They're probably listening to you, mm. you know, um, and, uh, it's, it's a struggle. Uh, but, uh, again, I, I'm blessed. My sons are, are doing well. Uh, they're great. Um, I have another son who's neurotypical who's going to be an art, an architect. Oh, well, that's great. Congratulations. You know, I actually had the um, this on my list of things to ask you about, having two sons that are autistic. We've seen some numbers recently that show the number of autistic young young men in this country 
has gone up pretty precipitously over the last 20 years, the last 30 years, the last 40 years. Do do you think that's a reflection of more accurate diagnosis, or is that a reflection of the fact that there are more people that are autistic, or is there there something else at play here? Well, I think that uh, uh, we're recognizing that that's true, but um, most of the people I know with autism, you immediately recognize it. And so I think there's something going on in the environment uh, that we're not uh, addressing, uh, and it's resulting in kids with these issues. Uh, and it, I think it's a national crisis. I mean, I, you know, um, I'm very concerned about it. I mean, we're looking, I saw a study the other day that uh, uh, it, we're looking at one in 30 males. Oh, no, uh, absolutely. I, I agree with you. This is uh, absolutely a national crisis. So y- you think it, there's a potential that there could be something in the environment, whether it's the air, whether it's the food, whether it's the water, whether it's the electronic devices or something else that could be causing this to be more prevalent these days? Yes. Interesting. Uh, very yeah. interesting. Hey, um, I know these days since retiring from uh, the Westchester County uh, probation office, you are, have made the transition to being a polygraph examiner. Uh, that's pretty interesting. What made you? Uh, ma- what made you want to do that? Well, you know, when I, when I ran the sex offender program, um, I I learned about what polygraph was about and how it's used uh, to manage sex offenders, uh, and it's been used very effectively in Westchester, but really all around the country at this point. Um, it's it's one of the things that really works uh, in managing this population. Um, and so polygraph testing of sex offenders on a regular basis is done, you know, pretty much in every state in the union. How accurate are the polygraph tests? Well, polygraph is probably, well, it is the most accurate means we have of verifying truth, all right? Now, any time you have uh, a test of a person, right, uh, and what we're measuring in polygraph is physiology, right, um, it's not a mind-reading machine. So there's a lot of technique that goes into every session to make sure that the person, you know, is notified of their rights, is prepared correctly, uh, and understands exactly what's going on in the session, Um but, you know, generally speaking, the American Polygraph Association cites a number uh, in the upper 80 percent. Um, if it's a single issue test, as high as 89 percent accuracy based on all of the studies that have been done. You know, there was a, a meta-analysis of different studies, and they settled on an 89 percent, um, you know, average when you look at all those studies. Uh, that's pretty good because when you look at other methods of truth verification, you know, first of all, just our own gut instincts when we look at a a person and try to figure out whether they're being honest when they're talking to us, um, that's about 53, 54%, right? Uh, When you boost it up with a polygraph, you get a lot more accuracy. Um, You know, so it's the best thing we have, um, and it creates an expectation of the men and I say men because most sex offenders are males, right? I mean, uh, and uh, it creates an expectation for the men who are under supervision with probation officers and who are going to treatment programs that they have to be honest, right? Because, you know, I mean, 
it's quite clear that if these men are not involved in a program that really focuses on them, uh, anything goes, you know, and uh, that's that's the problem with, with sexual offenders is that they, you know, they're capable really of multiple victims and, and doing a whole number of different things, um, you know, that they very rarely get caught for. Um, can you train yourself to beat a polygraph test? I think no. Um, I, I have a theory, it's only a theory, that there's one group of people who could, in theory, beat a polygraph, but it takes 20 to 30 years of training. And they're the Buddhist monks that you see in the mountains of Tibet, right, training uh, in meditation, and they can control their movement, uh, their breathing, their heart rate, uh, even their body temperature, right? And when you look at the things that a polygraph measures, those are the elements that we're, we're really hmm. measuring because we're measuring the fight-or-flight response uh, in a polygraph. And so those folks with enough training, I think, could in theory beat a polygraph. Um, but the rest of us, I mean, what I tell any man that walks into a room, uh, and I did three tests today, um, uh, I tell them all, I need you to be 100% honest. Uh, we need to know what's going on with you, first of all, to keep you from getting into trouble uh, and to keep you on the streets. You know, so th- these men do have motivation for coming in and being honest about things that go on with them, such as relapsing into porn use, uh, that kind of stuff. Mm. No, uh, that's interesting. Do do you think that they should be admissible in court? I know there's always a big deal made that they're not admissible. Do you think they should be? Well, the, the reality is is that no machine is admissible in court. IBM's Big Blue is not admissible in court. Well, I mean, bl- breathalyzer results are, right? Well, actually, typically with breathalyzer results, it still comes down to the expert testimony. It may be downstream of somebody who says this machine is valid, right? Uh, the same thing with DNA testing. Someone has to get on the stand and answer questions about whether this result is valid, right? And there have been many cases in many parts of the country where polygraph results have been admitted uh, into court Hmm. proceedings. In about half the states in the country, that's been the case. Um, And so, you know, it's a tricky legal decision, uh, you know, and New York has actually had decisions that have gone both ways. Um, So... Uh, I, I think that polygraph is valid when it's used correctly, when it's used by a, a trained person. Um, and uh, I think it's a helpful tool for law enforcement and particularly for, you know, people who have to supervise, you know, people under supervision for sex offenses. You know, I remember last question about this, and then I want to talk about the book. And if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Louis Conti. He's the author of the novel The Book of Sasquatch, which we're going to get into a sec- in a second. But uh, after John Gotti Jr.'s fourth trial ended in a, uh, you know, in a hung jury, he was furious that the government put on the stand a whole bunch of cooperating witnesses that he felt were, were lying. And he felt that the government knew they were lying. And one of the things that he suggested that the government should do is that he felt that they should polygraph 
these cooperating witnesses prior to their testifying so that the government knew the, whether they were telling the truth or not. And John's attitude was, you know, I understand it's not 100 percent, but at least they'll have some idea of whether or not the witnesses they're putting on the stand are telling the truth or not. Is that something that you'd be on board with? Do you think the government should make polygraphing their witnesses part of their normal course of putting on cases? Well, I do know of situations where that has been done. Um, I, I don't know if I would say it should be a normal part uh, of the um, of a given. It depends on the nature of the proceeding. You know, I, I think it depends on the case. But I, I, I am aware of situations where witnesses have been screened with with polygraph uh, and it can be helpful. Um, and it can shed light on a lot of things. Uh, so. It, 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 it's a tough one to just go yes or no with. I think it depends on the circumstances of the case. All right, let's talk about the book of Sasquatch. Uh, what made you write this novel? <laughs> well, for, I um, uh, I often wrote write short stories for uh, one of my sons with autism, and they're social stories. You know, they're uh, they're stories designed to sort of give them a a way to approach a situation in life. Uh, um, and I, I've done this over the years. And one night we were home. This is six, seven years ago now. And we're watching this this fun show, um, Finding Bigfoot. Uh, and the show's a hoot. You know, it's people in the woods, you know, doing tree knocking and howling and stuff like that, trying to, you know, uh, elicit a response from a, from a Bigfoot. And they're in the woods at night, and we're watching this show. And and uh, one of my sons leaned over to me and said, do you think that the elusive Bigfoot notices the television crew following uh, these guys through the woods? You know, <laughs> And it, it just struck me as uh, kind of a funny observation. Uh, and I wrote, you know, a short story about that. You know, you know, what does the Sasquatch really think about, um, you know, people trying to find him in the woods and stuff like that? And it sort of touched on a, a book I read when I was a kid called Grendel by John Gardner, which is the Beowulf story told from the monster's point of view, you know. Uh, and it, it was it's a great book and uh, uh, it's still in print. It's still out there. And it, it's a fun read. And it, John Gardner was a great American writer. He's kind of uh, not remembered too well these days. So I always try to, you know, enlighten people whenever I can that there's this other book out there. But, you know, I, I like the character's voice, uh, and uh, as writers do, I just started, you know, writing, and I kept going with it. Uh, and it led me into some very interesting discoveries about, first of all, the Bigfoot phenomena, mm. uh, but also Native American myths. Um, I weave a lot of that into the novel, um, as well as Judeo-Christian mythology, uh, and, um, you know, beliefs and, and all of that sort of stuff. And then, of course, autism, right? And, uh, you know, essentially what I lay out in the book is that the, you know, the Bigfoot um, people, if you will, or the, you know, beings, they communicate telepathically. Uh, and that's how they can stay in touch with each other when they're in the wilderness separated by great distances. Uh, and one one Bigfoot named Sasquatch, who begins the book very angry at humanity for good reason, um, all of a sudden starts getting messages from someone he doesn't know. Uh, and the messages are about 
um, treating others with kindness uh, and being forgiving of others. And these are kind of alien concepts for a Bigfoot, Mm. right? And so he doesn't know who these messages are coming from. But as the book unfolds, he realizes that they're coming from a nonverbal child with autism. And so the only person that this child can communicate with is a being that no one really believes exists. As far as you know, is this the first novel to have a Sasquatch as a main character? You know, I I look through a number of different books out there. Most of them are, you know, stories about people's encounters with Bigfoot. Um, And they've always left me wondering, why is this, if this creature exists, if this, this kind of animal exists, why is it so resistant to wanting any interaction with humans, right? Um, And that became kind of a running theme in the book, that there's really very good reason why they're this way. Uh, And that has to do, unfortunately, with our behavior. When you look at, uh, you know, human behavior Mm -hmm. over the centuries with people who, you know, we regard as different, uh, sometimes the record isn't so good. Right. Oh, that's for sure. So the reason that you chose to make one of the main characters a Sasquatch, it was because you were inspired from seeing this program on television. Yeah, that was part of it. Um, you know, the uh, it's interesting to me, the people who um, are pursuing, you know, this um, this phenomena, right? Um, it occurred to me that, you know, on certain levels, they're doing more than just um, looking for an animal, right? Part of it, and this got me into Native American myth, part of this is a spiritual quest for a lot of these people, you know? And and so what is driving this desire to see something, um, you know, that is sort of like us but so different, really, you know? Um, what what is this whole thing about with people? Why Why would anyone want to do this, right? Um, and so, um, you know, I looked at the way Native American cultures have handled, uh, you know, the Bigfoot legend. Um, and for them, um, this, this is not a myth. Uh, this is a very real mm-hmm. creature. Uh, and um, in some instances, it's to be feared, but always respected. Uh, and, um, and their myths speak to that, you know. Um, so... You know, um, there there is one other human being that Sasquatch will will communicate with, and it's a Chinook uh, uh, a Chinook shaman, um, and he has a you know a relationship with him, uh, and so those are kind of the key characters in the book, along with um, you know the the child with autism. His name is Christopher in the book, uh, and his his mother who's struggling to you know, sort of navigate the world with this kid that, you know, this new town they've moved into uh, isn't accepting of the family at first. Uh, The kid wanders, you know, away from the school, and wandering is a big problem for kids with autism, you know. And um, so this family is struggling, and, you you know, so I'm very much playing with themes of who the outsiders in the world are. Uh, And, 
you know, and at one point in the book, you know, Sasquatch makes the point that my people lived on, have always lived on the fringes of people living on the fringes. (laughs) Well said. Hey, what is the target audience for this book? Is it geared towards younger folks? Is it something that adults will enjoy too? Who are you hoping checks out this book? I, I do think that, you know, teenagers so far, I've gotten a lot of feedback from teenagers that they like the book. Um, of course, I get a lot of feedback from families with kids with autism and then people who are you know interested in the Bigfoot phenomena. But interestingly, I also get feedback from people um, who are sort of spiritually based because in the end, this did become mm. a very much a spiritual book. You know, it uh, it very much became a book about you know, in a sense, you know, Sasquatch's redemption, that through the through listening to the words of this child, he came to see humanity and does come to see humanity in a very different way, you know. Uh, and, and so that's really the point of the book, you know. This, your, your Sasquatch has quite a sense of humor, doesn't he? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, um, well, you know, first of all, if you're going to write a book with a nine-foot-tall hairy man who weighs about 800 <laughs> pounds, you might as well have a little fun with him, you know what I mean? Um, and and he does – it's a great way to weigh in on, you know, the crazy things that human beings do, you know. Um, I mean, he, he makes comments about, <laughs> you know, uh, at one point, you know, he uh, – you know, Christopher's mom is uh, – she's a park ranger, right? Uh, and, you know, so they make her wear a green uniform and, uh, you know, she's – but she's very good at what she does. She's a very tough person. She's got this job where she's got to, you know, rescue people in the wilderness and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and he says, but, you know, I, I find it interesting that human beings think that they can transform themselves just by changing clothes. Right. Uh, and he makes the point that I think that transforming yourself actually takes a little bit more work than that, you know. Um, so, you know, it's a great way to kind of, you know, weigh in on what goes on in the world, right? Um, you know, for instance, there's a, uh, a, a group of people protesting a group home opening up for disabled people, mm. you know, and he, um, you know, he sits there and says, well, isn't this interesting? You know, here are these people who desperately need a place to live and don't have one. Uh, and people who do have a place to live are protesting against them, you know. And, uh, you know, so it, it's a great way to kind of weigh in on what's going on in the world around us. You know, I mean, strictly speaking, this is uh, a fable, right? Um, when you have an animal, in essence, commenting on, you know, human lives and morals and things like that, you know, in, in a literary sense, you're talking about a fable. And, and it is very much that. Uh, last question, Lewis, because we're just about out of time, and uh, we want to encourage everybody to check out your your book, the Book of Sasquatch. Uh, if you uh, if you have a young person, or even you know, I think an older person might enjoy it as well. Uh, it's available on Amazon or most places that books are sold. I know this is a question you've gotten many times, but what is your take on on Bigfoot? Do you believe that um, there's a possibility that there may be Sasquatches running around on this continent somewhere? Um, I do. At this point, I, you know, I've, I've looked into it enough. Uh, now, I, as I say that to you, Frank, I'm not a person who's gone into the woods at night looking for sure, one. Sure. Um, I, I've done enough looking for, 
in dark places over my career that I, I don't need to go do that. Um, but I, I do think that uh, there's something to this. There's a lot of, first of all, we now have some DNA, which is an interesting thing that, that came out last year. Um, some DNA was found in the Kentucky Appalachians um, of a creature that seems to be a, a primate that is, the nearest relative would be something in the chimpanzee family, hmm. right? Now, I have no idea why why a creature that's like a chimpanzee but not quite a chimpanzee would be leaving DNA hmm. in the Appalachians. Uh, um, Lou, yeah. I, I got to run. I appreciate the uh, the time this morning. I hope we could talk again soon. Good luck with the book. Maybe we're going to have you in studio and polygraph some of our guests from time to time. I, I want to polygraph Bernie and Sid, uh, particularly after they said you couldn't uh, play for a space this morning. I don't know if you heard about that. I, I, uh, something tells me uh, that uh, that's not something either of them would agree to. Hey, Lou, thanks very much. You're welcome. Have a good evening. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. 